This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Thanks for downloading the Radio 2 Art Show podcast with me, Jonathan Ross. In this episode, we have snippets of the conversations I had with Charlie Kaufman and Duke Johnson discussing their film Annalisa. Uh, actor David Morrissey joins me as well as some super cosplayers, uh, including Yaya Han from America, and we have the author Owen James. <laughs> Heaven knows I'm miserable now by the Smiths. And if, I, if you'll forgive me for being a bit Alan Partridge here, I, I'm not miserable now because I have David Morrissey here in the studio with me. Hello. No relation. You're chewing me right up, though. Uh, so you were born and raised in Liverpool. When did you, when did you first realise acting was for you? Well, actually, I, when I was very young, when I was about seven, I, did, uh, I played the Scarecrow in uh, Wizard of Oz, and I loved it. And I didn't think of acting as a profession, but I really loved it. It was a great experience. And then when I went to my secondary school, which was a secondary modern in Liverpool, they didn't do drama at all. And I was having a bit of a miserable time there, a bit like Morrissey himself. But uh, I decided just then to think about when I'd last been really happy. And that was doing that play. How old were you then, then? When you... So then I was about 13, 13, 14. That's quite young for that kind of existential crisis to occur. Yeah, I mean, I was... I mean, my, my father died when I was 15, and he'd been very ill up to that point. So I, at that time, you know, I was in and out of the hospital visiting him. And so stuff you were like already that. thinking in a bigger way than most young people that age, I guess? Yeah, I guess so. I think mortality was very much on my conscience and stuff like that. But um, I, don't, I wouldn't want to pick, paint a picture of it being very, very down and stuff. It was just a point to me. I wasn't academic. I didn't get on with school. It wasn't something I enjoyed. And and I kept thinking, well, what did I enjoy? And it was that play that I did. So then I went seeking drama. I went seeking, you know, where I could do this. And and I eventually came across the Everyman Theatre in Liverpool, which is a big part of my life. And they had a youth theatre attached to that. And I went there. And I at first I thought, I'm not going to go in. I didn't want to go into that room. I could hear all this noise. And then this pretty young girl skipped past the steps and went in. I thought, oh, I'll go on. I'll give that's, a the, uh, that's the uh, age-old story, of course. Yeah. The number of young men who either formed bands or started acting because they thought they could finally meet someone that's of the opposite sex. And then once you go into that world and you think, this is where I'm going to meet girls, and then the world becomes sometimes more important than the opposite sex. You know, you're actually just working and loving it. You know, it's, and that was... That was something for me. It sort of became my life and still is. And when was it that you thought, OK, I've achieved uh, enough skill, enough craft, and I have a, enough of a standing now to, to genuinely make this a career? When was your first work where you thought, OK, I, I can probably do this? Because it is a notoriously difficult world to survive in. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't know whether I've ever felt that. I've never had that. It's just, you know, it's a precarious profession it's always you know it's it's renowned for its insecurity and I think that's part of what you need as an actor is a little bit of insecurity I've never met any actor regardless of how famous or uh, sort of successful they are who, who are that secure you know and I and I still feel like where's my next job coming from I was lucky enough to see you on stage just a few weeks ago. You were here in uh, the West End, London, and people may well have seen this all over the country because I believe it was just this week, a couple of nights ago, that the, a live performance would broadcast in cinemas up and down the UK of Hangmen. Yeah, not just the UK, all over the world. Wow. Yeah. Wow, wow. So, you know, I was getting tweets from people in America and Australia and New Zealand, all over the world who were seeing it. And there's a thing called NT Encore, which they put it out at different time frames, obviously, you know. Seven o'clock in our evening isn't the same all over the world. So they put it out at different 
sometimes, and I think you can still catch it around the country. How is it for you then, knowing that the the performance that you were giving in the room, which of course normally I'm, I'm sure your energies are directed out towards the audience as well as to your fellow actors, uh, but knowing then it was going out on, on that far greater scale? Yeah, it's interesting because it's called NT Live, but of course for us we do it live every night anyway. Yeah. And uh, I slightly forgot about the cameras and just got on with doing the play. It's quite, uh, as you've seen, it's quite a boisterous play so there was no question of taking it down in any way and the cameras are very strategically placed you can't see them when you're on stage it's not like there's some guy on stage running around after you so uh, I just forgot about it really. It's a very exciting use of the available technology of course doing this it's a very new thing but I I imagine it will have a great impact on on live theatre. Well, yeah, and I, I think it's great for people. You know, the tweets I've been getting from people in the UK, you know, all far, far from places, you know, have been really appreciative of us being able to deliver the show to them. Uh, we've had a four-month run in the West End. Uh, ticket prices in the West End are a certain, you know, yeah, hefty, yeah, yeah. hefty cost. And, and, and it was them, selling out, wasn't it? I mean, it was it, we have sold out, yeah. yeah. So that's been great. And then, and again, like I say, across the world, people seeing it for the first time, and and that's been really great for us, and great for Martin McDonough, who's the the writer who I. I think his work deserves to be seen as far as it can. Of yeah. course, his masterpiece is the film In Bruges, yeah, which well, I know you're a fan of yeah, as well. I am, yeah. uh, let's talk about your new film then. Tell me about this, because it's very interesting. I, I knew you were coming on, of course, um, but I hadn't been aware you were coming on to talk about this film particularly. But this morning, while looking through the papers, I saw something about this film, and I said to Jane, oh, there's a new film out we should go and see. Mm. So I was intrigued enough already by it, uh, because I do love uh, a mystery, a thriller... Uh, uh, and it sounds like it's a, a weird suspense. Yeah, it's written by David Farr, who's a great writer. He wrote um, a lot of spooks and stuff like that, but he also is a theatre director. He uh, ran The Gate for a long time. So he's uh, and this is his first time as a behind-the-camera as a director, and he was wonderful to work with. And, it, and it's about two couples, a couple upstairs living in London and a young couple upstairs who uh, suddenly find themselves pregnant, they're going to have a baby, and they're not wild about it. They have lots of issues, they're worried about their careers, stuff like that. And a couple move in below them, and they're having their baby as well. An older man, played by myself, and a young girl, and they're desperate for a child. They so want their child. And the two women get to know each other, and then my wife sadly loses her baby, and then the story starts to turn slightly about... um, It's a psychological thriller, I would say, very much in a Polanski sort of... So it's called The Ones Below, so it refers to the neighbours. Yeah, yeah, myself and my wife, Laura Byrne, who uh, we we play The Ones Below, and it's, it's a creepy thriller, and it's about... It's a very upsetting world, but really quite... Uh, your senses are really tingling all the way through. You, know? you do kind of like... Uh, you, you, If you will mind me saying something about your performance, I think you do that kind of... Um Initially friendly, but actually disturbing and creepy guy. Surprisingly well. <laughs> I don't know where I dragged that up from. You know, whereas you're the opposite, aren't you? I mean, the thing with you is you feel this, this guy's really horrible, but then the more you get to know you, think yeah, actually he's once quite you get nice. past the surface, I'm tolerable. You know, after four or five years, you think, well, no. But I'm thinking, obviously, right now, of the governor who you played in the Walking Dead series on TV, yeah, which, which was an incredible role and, and you know, likeable at first. And... and Interesting, an interestingly complex character that you get the space to play on television these days. Well, I think that's the great thing about The Walking Dead and those big seasons, you know, that you're not just in and doing a small part. You get a chance to build those complexities. And I remember it was meeting you, actually, just after I got the part, and you said, oh, that's a great role. And, of course, I knew that there's the role from the comic strip, but we had to do certain different things with it. You know, in the comic strip, he 
the character comes to a really brutal end. Yeah. And, and my character needed to sort of keep his nuts, really, for a while and stuff. So it was really, you know, it was very different. But I loved doing it. I loved being on the show. And they were here in London, actually, all the uh, cast. They came to see the show a couple of weeks ago. And, of course, the great Greg Nakatera, who is the show's, one of the show's directors, but also the great makeup artist. Well, he started doing the makeup, and then he kind of blossomed into perhaps their strong, one of their strongest directors. Absolutely. So. I mean, and really, you know, looks after the show in a great way. Him and Scott Gimple now, uh, who's the showrunner, they're really wonderful to work with. And I love Greg. And he does all of Tarantino's stuff. I must, well. I must, I suppose, before we were going to play a track now, before we do, I, I think I need to apologise because I was driving past one day because we live fairly near each other. <laughs> and I, I put, I don't know what possessed me, I put down the window and checked, go! Out very loudly at you, no. and then I'm myself. You probably don't enjoy that. Well, there's, it's better than what some of the, the people shout at me when uh, when they're driving along. I have to say, because my character is pretty horrible. Yeah, pretty nasty. Okay, we're going to play some share now. Oh, this is Gypsies, Tramps, and Thieves. The magnificent share, Gypsies, Tramps and Thieves. When you examine the lyrics of that song, it's it's kind of a, it's a it's almost it's a bit like Hangman. It's a peculiar story. It is a bit strange. <laughs> uh, let's go back to the ones below because the new movie uh, it's out all over the UK this weekend, I believe. Yeah, Clemens Posey and Stephen Campbell Moore as well. Yeah, two great actors. Now you're working with a, a guy who's done a lot of theatre work as a director, but this is his first time as a film, a movie director. How is that for you? You've been in a number of films. Does he defer to sometimes the cast? Is he or did he have a very clear vision as to yeah, how? Yeah, he, he came from theatre, so you know. He was very inclusive with the actors, and it's a, it's really four people in the film. You know, it's a quite a small small cast, and he was very. You know, we would rehearse. There's lots of stuff in one room, and so we would be blocking it like a theatre piece, really. And he was wonderful, and he, his terms of reference were very much you know things like Polanski, Romy, uh, Rosemary's Baby, and stuff. And, and the great films that I knew. So, yeah, and uh, he was very collaborative. I loved working with him. And did you shoot in sequence or do you do what they normally do in movies? Because I imagine playing something like this, while well, I assume there's a simmering tension that increases and changes. I imagine it would probably be beneficial to shoot in... in we in... did shoot in sequence, as much as possibly. Uh, as possible, we did. We shot in sequence and that really added to the tension of, of the piece. And, uh, yeah, it's quite an internal piece, but uh, really frightening. I, I love doing it. Do you find... Do you, I mean, are you one of these guys who ever takes the work home? so to speak. Yeah, I take the mood home. I don't take the... I sometimes take the, the hair colour home as well. But uh, <laughs> No, I do. I, 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 you know, if you're being in, in an intense atmosphere for, uh, you know, 10 hours or whatever, you do take that home, yeah. I mean, my wife and kids have got used to me now coming home and being a bit gloomy or a bit hyper as well. Yeah. That's the other thing. You know, you've had a great day at work and you can be quite hyper. And is I, there, do you have a set routine for removing yourself from that frame of mind? Uh, not not now. I mean, I used to, but I now I feel that they're they're good at sort of negotiating themselves around me. But that's not that's true of anybody's work. I think I think if you know if you're a bus driver and you've had a heavy day of people shouting at you, you must take that home with you in some way. Yeah. I do have a way of trying to sort of get away from that mood, but. You know, sometimes it doesn't work. You're just tired and that's it. But, you know, that's true of all workplaces, I think. So Dad's playing a murderer. Give him a bit of space. <laughs> that's right. <Yeah. laughs> if he comes home with his eye patch on, maybe not. So well, much. especially you playing so many yeah. damaged human beings. <laughs> yeah, but maybe I get it out at work. That's the other thing. You know, I mean, I leave it all there. <laughs> well, that's, I would hope so. What's next for you after this? Yeah, I'm doing The Missing. So uh, they did the season last year with Jimmy Nesbitt and it's a whole new season. Wow. And uh, I'm really Looking forward to that, and I fly over to Belgium, which is where we're filming predominantly uh, on Sunday. Uh, the ending of that left some people 
mm, disappointed is the wrong word, but perplexed. I it was an it was. open ending, yeah. I think. Yeah, uh, I can't give away what happens in ours, but uh, I, I love the scripts. But would it, is there a degree more closure? Or you can't even go that far. Uh, I would say there is a degree of closure, but it's uh, it's still people are still left to pick up the pieces of what happens along the on the way. Yeah. Which I, I personally find uh, that, that I have no problem with because that's that's life. Yeah, that's what happens. That really is, you know. David, I hope that we leave you in a suitable frame of mind to go home without having to decompress too much after Thank this encounter. Thank you encounter. very much. I'll go and lie down for an hour. <laughs> Great to see you again. As I said, David's new film, The Ones Below, is out kind of all over the UK right now. So uh, do yourself a favour, go and see it. OK, so uh, I am now going to be speaking to global cosplay superstar Yaya Han. She's in Atlanta, Georgia, but we're speaking over the line and we've got some UK cosplayers coming to join me in just a moment. Yaya, I hope you can hear me OK. How are you? Hi, I am very well this morning. Thank you, Jonathan. Good, 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 good. Uh, OK, so first of all, cosplay. For those who don't know, let's start by just uh, making it clear. What, what is cosplay? Cosplay is a unique uh, performance art form as well as hands-on crafting art form where you simply dress up as a favorite character of yours. And a lot of people make their own costumes. Other people purchase their costumes. But it's really about expressing your love for a character and being a fan. So tell me about some of the more more popular um, cosplay outfits or looks that we might see at an average convention? Because here in the UK, we have the film and Comic-Con in Cardiff kicking off uh, right now. So there'll be a yeah. lot of cosplayers there, I'm sure. And I know you've travelled the world and visited them, which which I guess it's it's a lot of comic and science fiction characters predominantly. Definitely. I mean, Marvel and DC have a huge presence at um, comic conventions. So you'll see lots of Batmans and Captain Americas and Loki and such. But uh, really, cosplay can span the genre. So uh, very popular are gaming characters. So you'll see lots of League of Legends and World of Warcraft, Assassin's Creed and such, and from Japanese anime. I mean, it really has become this uh, just sort of spanning all kinds of different fandoms and you know, just and even people uh, design their own characters. What's the, uh, what's the strangest uh, uh, look you've seen, if indeed it would seem strange to you? I I just think it's amazing to see people being able to translate some very um you know just crazy concepts into real life outfits like from uh Silent Hill the the horror game genre yeah. people are making costumes from it that just don't seem even possible some of them are making costumes that are two people combined into one outfit and so, so the, the creativity is really incredible. I, I guess that's one of the huge challenges because often you're dealing with characters that exist only in two dimensions on, on paper or <laughs> exist in video games where, of yep. course, there are no physics to, to fight against. And then suddenly you have to work out how to make something that big and that ungainly actually wearable and, and be able to walk around in it. Definitely. I think a lot of the designers, they probably design outfits and they secretly are just like, hey, 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 good luck cosplayers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, the strangest one I saw, I was in Japan a few years ago and I've always uh, enjoyed it as a kind of spectacle. And I saw a young man dressed as Colonel Sanders from Kentucky Fried Chicken. Oh, that's that's awesome! It was a pretty I good look. I love that it was in Japan. I think he was getting uh, most of the selfies more than anyone else. Uh, yeah. So, how many costumes have you made over the years? How many do you have in your oh, in gosh. your wardrobe? I personally, just for myself, have made over three hundred. I mean, I don't keep exact count, but it's 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 definitely over three hundred wow. something. And what but, was the? But I've been doing this for a long time. So. What was the first one, Yaya? 
Oh my gosh. The first one was probably nobody is going to know. It's from a Japanese anime called Yu Yu Hakusho. Right. And I was actually dressed like a guy. It was Kurama. And, uh, but I did not, like, I did not know how to actually, you know, make myself look like a guy. So, <laughs> no. <laughs> but I did make the outfit. I did sew it. I, I've had that problem trying to make myself look like a guy for my whole <laughs> life. So, uh, I sympathize with you. One of the things that I find very attractive about it is it, it seems to be not only a very healthy and welcoming atmosphere, but it's also very inclusive in that you see people of all ages. Oh, gosh. All yes. sizes, people with um, different abilities. I mean, I've seen a lot of different people in wheelchairs who've used their chair as part of their cosplay yeah. outfit. And that seems to me that's a very positive thing. Definitely. For me, I agree 100%. And I, I definitely encourage people to to try this because it it really doesn't matter what you look like, you know, what your body type is or, or what ethnicity, because you are being a fan. And I always say there's no difference between you wearing a T-shirt of your favorite character and, you know, dressing up as that character. Like, it doesn't matter if your skin tone doesn't match. And uh, for the most part, the uh, cosplay community is really inclusive for for people that, you know, may have social anxiety or, uh, you know, were the outcast when they were younger. And uh, it's a huge confidence bo- booster. And, you know, creatively, it is a safe activity. You're doing it at home. I always tell parents to support their kids when they want to get into cosplay because they are doing something that stimulates them and uh, is artistic instead of who knows what they might be doing, <laughs> yeah. you know, out in the And the craft the element is a very important part. I know, you know, just the level of craftsmanship and the skill and the planning that goes into some of these costumes. And I guess you learn a number of skills. You, you must be a fairly accomplished seamstress by now. I am very comfortable with sewing, yes, yes. And I, I am self-taught, uh, but I, it, it just came from many years of making mistakes. Um, and But it, you're right, it is really about learning new skills and, you know, trying new techniques. And I think the Internet has really opened uh, this, this, the cosplay world because we now can really find resources and materials on just about anything and we can connect with each other. So if someone listening thinks, OK, I'm going to try this now, um, what are the, uh, the and they want to do something a little bit out of the ordinary? I, I've seen a lot of the same characters. I would I would say, for example, Harley Quinn. We're going to have a glut of Harley yes. Quinns this coming summer uh, with Suicide Harley, Squad. Harley's oh, my God. Everywhere. Harley is has always been one of the most popular cosplay characters. And it's really cool to see different variations of her. So people even come up with their own concept yeah. of Harlequin. Well, that's when the fun comes into it. But what would people, what people, what should people avoid if they don't want to be part of the pack? What other characters you think which are which are perhaps more prevalent than others? Uh, I I don't think you should view it that way because it, with cosplay, it's a very uh, it, it's really an activity that is. Uh, very personal to you. So if you want to cosplay a character, you shouldn't really consider if that character is popular or if it's obscure. It really should be about how you feel when you are that character for the day. So it's your version and it's how it makes you (laughs) function when you're out and about. Yes, yes. It it really is a transformation of your internal self and uh, sort of finding strength and finding qualities and attributes about yourself that you didn't even know that you had until you 
you dressed up as a character. That's wonderful. People can follow you on Twitter. You're, are you just at Yaya Han? Yes, at Yaya Han, and I post every day. So you can see all the pictures you know, of Yaya in action there, and we'll put some on yes. the Radio 2 website as well. And you're fluent in seven languages, is that right? No, no, oh. I'm fluent in three. I was ah. born in China and raised in Germany. Yaya, you should have just so. said yes, because I wasn't going to test you. That would have been fine. <laughs> we could have started that legend right now. Yeah, but I, I didn't know. Maybe you would have tested me, and then I, what would I have done? <laughs> I would have made you the count in all of them. Yaya, lovely speaking uh. to you. Good luck in all your work going forward. I know you have a range of uh, cosplay starter kits out there as well, so people can look for that. But I look forward to seeing you at various American cons when I'm out there lurking in the background. Thank you. Or I would love to come back to the UK. So well, come back over. Great cons in the UK. There'll be a warm welcome, but only if you speak seven languages. Okay. So, <laughs> I so have to learn. Start studying. Lovely Four speaking more. to you. Take care, Yaya. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. So I have David, Julieta and Kirami. Welcome, guys. Hello. Hello. Uh, you look spectacular. Let me start with you, Julieta. Can you describe your outfit for, for the listeners? Well, basically, I'm um, Oblivion Deidre Karma, so there's lots of spikes, lots of red and um, grey. And... and Oblivion, that's a video game, yeah? Yeah. OK. Uh, and Kieran? I'm a Titan from the game Destiny. It's the Trials of Science gear, so it's the highest rank you can get. And finally, David, who, uh, as I've already said to you, you must be compensating for something because you've given yourself an extra two feet of height there. What, what are you dressed as? That's right. I'm um, a full-size Chaos Space Marine. I wow. stand about eight foot tall. And that's from the Warhammer game, isn't it? That is, yeah. OK, so now you guys know each other. I guess you've met uh, at cosplay events and so on. When's, when's the next appearance for you? If people were near the one in Wales at some of the moment, would I, any of you be there? Yes. Yeah, I'll be there on Sunday. Yeah, I'm there both days. OK, do you take the uh, more than one outfit along or do you just look, have one look when you go to a con? So For me, I always stick with the space room. <laughs> I can imagine this, uh, just getting that in. Uh, that must take up like, four suitcases. Um, it fills my entire car. Wow. And it gets unpacked straight from that. Wow. Uh, now, you, presumably you all made your own outfits. Yeah. That must be... When you first start, I guess it must feel somewhat overwhelming when you're working with plastics and foam and, and different kind of... Well, well, for someone to be, as a beginner, if they wanted to join you in this pursuit, where would you recommend they start, Julieta? Um, well, I would say research first, because nine times out of ten, somebody's done a tutorial on it. But um, get to know different materials, ask other cosplayers. We're all really friendly, so, you know, there's always somebody willing to help. It's a, yeah, it does seem a very um, welcoming mm, community. What's, what is the buzz you get from it? What is it? Why do you do what you do? Um, for, well, for me, I'm an artist, so I, to me it's kind of like I'm wearing a painting that I've done. So, um, But also it's, you know, it's really awesome to kind of like go out there and, and, call, and almost like be that character for the day and, like, you know, and people love it. So. And the Titan, how does the Titan behave? Oh, the Space Marine? I am... Um... I, Sorry, yeah. I'm kind of known as the friendliest space yeah. <laughs> I'm the opposite to my character in person. So um, although I do a lot of running around, grabbing people by the head with my claw, and I've yeah. got a seven-foot axe I wave around a lot. <laughs> <laughs> do you, uh, are you ever surprised by the response? I imagine kids must love seeing you, but I bet adults get a bit of a thrill as well, don't they? Yeah, I mean, um, I think though with my Alien Queen costume, I actually make kids cry, so... Uh, <laughs> and was that the intention when you, um, when you... No, I mean, I don't really set out to upset anybody, but um, it's it's the only costume that I've got that actually has such a strong like response from people. But other than that, like the parents like it, so it's... And is that the Alien Queen from the Alien movies? Yeah. Yeah, so presumably the kids who respond the way, they probably haven't seen the films even. Yeah, probably. So it's just such a terrifying look. <laughs> mm. Uh, is there a kind of holy grail in cosplay? Is there a costume that people try and make but you can't quite pull off? Are there a number of more complex characters that people try to bring to life that, that evade them? 
Um, I think everyone has that one costume that they really want to make. Like I'm in the process of planning my one at the moment. It's just building myself up to actually want to get started and commit to doing it. And you don't want to, you won't reveal what that is. You want to keep that. Um, some people already know, but it's from um, Pacific Rim, one of the. Uh, Jaeger robots. One of the great big giant fighting yes. robots. It's very interesting. I don't know what it's like for people at home, but in here, I'm aware of the fact that you are all creaking and there's a, there's a lot of foam and plastic joints rubbing together. <laughs> but comfort must be a real challenge. He's making something which doesn't just look like this character that you love either in games or in manga or whatever, but also that you can wear for a fairly long period of time. Yeah, tell me about it. In fact, like all of my armors have heels. So it's kind of like self-punishment, but I like to... Um, I, I tend to do quite slender armour, so it kind of like adds to the look and also makes me a little bit taller as well. Well, it so. must be tougher for women because a lot of the characters that uh, we love in anime, for example, are designed by men with a certain uh, audience in mind. Yeah. So they're kind of... You, you don't get to cover your body quite as much as, for example, you would uh, <laughs> over there. So it's like, I guess there is that thing where you have to balance what's going to be comfortable and also you're going to feel is appropriate to wear mm. out about. Yeah. Uh, to be honest, though, like, I quite enjoy... Um, being a gamer and stuff, I, I like to be, um, you know, the, the sexy female character that's, like, really strong and doesn't really need that much armour because she's that strong. So. Sexy and powerful. Yeah. Two words which have never been used to describe <laughs> me. Uh, it's great having you. So where, where will you be at? You guys are going to be at Wales this weekend. When's the next appearance for you, Julieta? Um, I believe Birmingham, uh, MCM... Sometime in May, uh, not May, so March. March. And do you have yeah. new looks that you're going to unveil at these events, or you? I probably go with my alien queen. <laughs> yeah. So if you have any kids in the Birmingham area, well, <laughs> they are probably going to be terrified for a few days, but in a fun way. <laughs> I'm excited to say that we have Charlie Kaufman and Duke Johnson on the line. They are the co-directors of the new movie Animalisa that's just opened today all over the United Kingdom. Uh, gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, well, let's start. Let's start with you, Charlie, if we can, because I guess that's where the project itself began. When did uh, when did you first write Animalisa? Because it wasn't intended as a film, is that correct? No, it was what we were calling a sound play. It was in 2005. And it was performed on stage, but the actors were reading scripts and there was a, a Foley artist on stage and there was um, Carter Burwell conducting the music that he wrote. And the idea was that the imagery should be created in the minds of the audience members. And so how did it leap from there to becoming a film? Was it something you saw, Duke, and you saw the potential or were you trying to get it made as a, a movie, Charlie? I was not trying to get it made. I, I, I wanted it to be what it was. It was designed to be just that. And um, a friend of mine named Dino Stamatopoulos was in the audience, and he went on to found an animation studio called Starburns, where Duke is a partner and a director, and they, they approached me in 2011 and asked if they could make it into a film. And, uh, and you were quick to say yes, or did you ponder it? I was desperate, and still am, to get anything made. So there was no pondering involved, uh, but, I, but I, there were no expectations yeah. either that they would raise the money. It's, uh, it strikes me as remarkable, and I guess it's just the nature of the industry, but someone with uh, the, the, the standing that you have uh, still have, has a problem getting stuff financed. Well... It's all about the Benjamins. I don't know if that translates into British. Well, not directly, but the Benjamins <laughs> means, means the dollars. Yeah, yeah the $100 uh, bills. Okay. It's, a, it's a movie. But you're happy to take funding from everywhere. I mean, you do it in rupees, you don't mind the yen. No, only Benjamins. Okay. Uh, the, now, this brings me, I suppose, inevitably, to the way this was initially funded. I believe it was crowdfunded to an extent. That's right. Yeah, we, we started with Kickstarter. It got us started, literally, and, uh, and it got us the attention of a man named uh, Keith Calder and a company named Snoot. 
Films who came on to finance the rest of the film independently. You can see, of course, why it's a gamble, not only because the subject matter itself is, is uh, if I may use the phrase, Kaufman-esque, uh, but also the fact that you were, you were intending to, to, to produce it, as you did with stop-motion animation, which is not uh, for an adult-themed movie such as this. And when I say adult-themed, that sounds a little bit like it's a porno. But, you know, dealing with the human condition in that way is not a, a given, certainly not in American cinema. Well, it's just basically, I, I think what you mean is that it's just a movie. It's mm. not specifically for children, yeah. which is what our understanding of animation is in the Western world. We were trying to broaden it, and we still are trying to broaden the, the understanding and appreciation of animation. Well, it's a, it's a beautiful piece of work, and I'm sure, I mean, yeah. I, I, as I understand it, uh, stop motion is, is a painstaking process. How long did it take you to make this film, Duke? Uh, it took three years altogether, um, which is actually... Uh, all things considered, pretty quick. Um, we didn't have any money or time for research or development, so we just kind of hit the ground running. And two years of physical production, and uh, we shot about a minute a week. I'm intrigued by the um, the design of the characters in the film. I mean, how would you, obviously, one way, but how would you describe the way they look, in particular their faces, the way they they appear to be wearing masks? Yeah, they, they have that uh, mask... Uh, look because of the way the faces are are divided between uh, a top portion, a brow region, and a lower portion for the mouth, and that's because of the type of animation that uses many different interchangeable pieces uh, to create the illusion of the the movement and the the performance. But I'm assuming it was a conscious decision to leave them as visible as that, because you could have covered that to an extent. That's right, and and when that type of animation is used, it, it typically is painted out. Mm. Always with computers. is. Always is. Yeah. Always is. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we didn't want to do that because um, we weren't trying to conceal the fact that it was stop motion for one thing, um, and and we felt that it uh, certainly added a, a a fractured quality to to the characters themselves and and. Uh, and and to the uh, to the aesthetic of the film. Yeah, well, I I very much enjoyed that, and it and it helped me kind of I think um, connect with the with the story even more. I mean, this the the the, the condition known as uh, Fregoli is that correct? He stays yeah. in the Fregoli Hotel in the Fregoli. Charlie, when you're writing, are you do you have a kind of I I imagine you having a kind of rolodex of weird psychological conditions that you dip into, uh, <laughs> or, or do you encounter something in the process and and it just fits? I think in this case, I just encountered something. I was looking for a way to do um, a, a play with three actors, but have one of them voice many characters. And I'd read about the Fricoli delusion, which is the belief that everybody else in the world is the same person. And I thought that would lend itself to the sort of um, the the ennui that the character of Michael had. So, yeah, he doesn't literally have Fricoli, but... I used it metaphorically. Yeah. I'm talking to Charlie and Duke about Animalisa, and at some point in the movie, uh, there is some Cindy Lauper music, so what better time to play this? That's Cindy Lauper. Girls just want to have fun. Uh, back to you, Charlie and Duke. Let me ask you, uh, once again, if I can ask you, Duke, there's a, there is a sex scene in the film, which I imagine must pose an even greater challenge when you're looking stop motion than it does in other films because there's the chance that it could have been inadvertently funny. Yeah. Um, well, I think that there's... Uh, you, you know, you mention puppets and sex to people and they immediately sort of giggle. Um, and we were aware of a precedence that was set by uh, Team America... 
Um, <laughs> Which is a fabulous piece of work in its own right. Oh, absolutely. It's yeah. hilarious. Um, but it's obviously, it's, it's a different thing. I yeah. mean, it's, that's <laughs> intentionally a joke. And yeah. in this case, it, it wasn't that we didn't want it to be f- funny. I mean, there is humor that comes out of it organically yeah. between from the uh, interaction of the characters. But we just wanted it to be... Um, uh, authentic mm. and and true to these characters and what they're experiencing in that moment. And that sh- that um, scene took six months to shoot. Wow! Because we were being very very careful in 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 keeping it in in keeping it with the tone of the rest of the movie. Well, it, I mean, you know, for what my opinion is worth, it works, and it's uh, it's uh, I think th- that alone is an incredible achievement that you managed to pull that off. Did you find that you have to kind of um, uh, not pre-warn, but sort of prepare people for the movie being a different sort of experience to what they might have as a preconception for either an animated film or indeed uh, one of your films, Charlie. Um, well, I, I think it's kind of in, in keeping with the rest of my my movies, but um, in terms of, yeah, animated, I mean, in the United States, it's got an R rating, which means that you, you, people know that it's not for children. Yeah, so I, I imagine it'll get something like that here. It's not on a double bill with Kung Fu Panda 3. No, it, it, it isn't. No. It should be, but it isn't. I'd love to see most of your films on a double with Kung Fu Panda 3. <laughs> uh, I've got to say, I'm just on a personal level, Sinek Doki, isn't it, is the correct That's correct, yeah. So that is one of the, the most wonderful films I've ever seen. Oh, and thank I, you. I've seen a lot of films. An incredible piece of work. For yeah, Working with Seymour Hoffman on that, presumably he must have been your first choice because that is an extraordinary performance he gives. Yeah, he was my only choice. And, yeah, I mean, Phil was in every scene in that movie except one, and the, the work that he had to do and the time he had to put into it and the, his commitment. And and it was it was amazing in editing to sort of watch it come together in ways that I, I didn't even know it would, that performance, you know, the way the way that he had, had you know, out of, you know, because the scenes were out of order and it just sort of fell into place in a beautiful way. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a beautiful film. It's an ex- I think everyone should be forced to see it, whether I, they want to or not. Yeah. What are you working on next? Um, I'm writing a novel, and I'm writing a screenplay for Paramount, and that's it. Well, you know, the standard response when someone says they're writing a novel is to say, yeah, nor am I, because they, <laughs> uh, they, they tend to not appear for a long while. You've been writing that novel for quite a while, as I understand it. I, I have, and it's been very difficult, but I've also been doing things in the meantime because I have to pay my mortgage, so it gets put on hold. I wasn't judging you. I just uh, wanted, I'd, like to, I'd just like to see it finished. That's yeah, all. I would too. Okay. <laughs> and, Duke, what's up next for you? Uh, I'm going to do a live-action film next. Wow. And that's going to be, I imagine, a whole different set of challenges. I imagine it will be, yes. How are your people skills, Duke? Because working with puppets is one thing. Uh, Yeah, well, you know, believe it or not, uh, there's a lot of people you have to interact with (laughs) in the puppet world as well. Puppets don't move themselves. But (laughs) I imagine they don't have quite the same sense of themselves that, love them though we do, that actors often have. You, you'd be surprised. There's crazy people everywhere. <laughs> I'd love to meet a diva puppeteer. <laughs> I can introduce you to several. <laughs> I look forward to that. Gentlemen, congratulations on a, a, an exceptional piece of work, and uh, I look forward to whatever both of you produce next. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank you. Take care. The Radio 2 Book Club. Fact, not fiction. I'm here with Erwin James. His book is Redeemable, a memoir of darkness and hope. And Erwin, I can't begin to tell you how happy I was when I saw the word hope at the end of that. Because to read a, a book which was just darkness would have been a bit too much for a man of my age. Uh, tell me about the, uh, the process of writing this, because this is, it's a true story. Well, it's, it's my story. It's my sort of account of myself. You know, how do, how do any of us become who we become? And I became a, a very dysfunctional, dangerous unpleasant 
person, you know, over like 27 years of my life. Went to jail, a barely educated, inarticulate brute, and emerged 20 years later, an educated, articulate, empathetic writer, you know. So how did that happen? Well, I've written my book to try and explain, sort of, because I even I need to explain it to myself. How how did that happen? How that process was so complex and powerful. And I just, you know, I've been out of prison now for nearly twelve years, and I thought it's time to just leave an account of myself before I go. You know, when you were writing about yourself before uh, the period of change mm -hmm. that occurred. Um, you you write about yourself in an articulate way and you express the thoughts that the person back then had in an articulate way. So did you were you inside as complex and as thoughtful as you appear in this or is this with the benefit of hindsight you are interpreting what happened? Well, I spent a lot of time, as you've, if you read the book, Jonathan, I know you've been reading it and I'm really pleased that you are. I'm, I, can't admit, I can't believe you're, you're reading that book, but you are. I met this psychologist, Joan Branton, and I spent almost two years with her, um, sort of unravelling my life from childhood. Uh, I mean, I wasn't the special one. She did it with everyone on that high-security wing, you know, 85 men convicted of murder. And her job was to try and figure out how we'd become who we'd become. So she, she unravelled my life. Me and her together did this. And so that was, I guess, when I was writing, I was going back to those sessions with her. You know, she she... Because when I first went to prison, it was all a, just a black hole. The, the past was just a, a grim, black place. You know, when you're in isolation in a prison cell, with my first year in prison, my life sentence, I was just in isolation, you know. And you, you do live in your head. You sort of live in it. And you have the most vivid dreams and nightmares and fantasies, you know. It's the most vivid place. And then when I met Joan Branton, the psychologist, who then started to probe and unravel that, and allowed me. She, I think, she gave me this 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 confidence and the skills to articulate those experiences. So when it came to the book, I just put myself back in those interactions, you know, and, and sort of and wrote as I thought I, I'd been then as a kid. For how do you write as a child, for example? You know, yeah, yeah, I, just, I just put myself in that in those, mm. you know, back in that in that situation and just wrote as I thought I should. What's fascinating in the early section of the book is the fact that you, you find out via a meeting with your father who comes in, you've joined the Foreign Legion, mm. which is in itself, I would have thought, would give someone enough material for book because that's a, a fascinating concept. You are con mm. escaping from situations here. Um, but when you realise you're being searched and you are wanted mm. for murder... Um, you kind of decide, OK, well, I, I have to go back, I have to face this. And partly you wanted to, didn't you? Partly you wanted to, to bring that to a resolution. Do you know, I think I wanted to from the very moment I fled. You know, I, I had no character, I had no courage, I had no integrity, I had no sense of uh, propriety. And I fled. You know, I'd been a coward all my life. And I, and I fled the country and I joined the Foreign Legion, you know, no adventure, no excitement. I went to, to hide, you know, for my crimes. And I think what brought me back, I think, when I look back, I think the fact that instantly, as soon as my dad told me I was wanted for murder, as soon as I put the phone down, I decided to come back. And it's the only redeemable sort of feature when I look back of my my behaviour, you know. I, I put the, I could have kept running, you know. The, the Legion would have, helped, they would have hid me in Africa or South America or somewhere. Or they've got... Bases all over the country, you know, all over the world, they would have hid me, you know. But I, I didn't. I didn't want to keep running. I wanted to come back. But it was. It was. It was one thing coming back, and another thing, 
owning up and, and being honest. You know? Because you weren't initially, were you? You were still p- pleading your innocence as you start the book saying that, and you are somewhat ashamed of that. Oh, gosh, I'm, I'm so, there's so much I'm ashamed of, but I think... It was just, you know, my, my lawyer said nobody ever pleads guilty to murder. My co-accused was saying, you know, he did it because of me. I was backed up in a corner and um, without, a real, without a real character, a real, a real honest character that we all need. You need, a, you need a good, strong character to survive and to do well in the world. And I just didn't. I was just a coward. And so, yeah, I pled not guilty. Thank goodness I was found guilty. Um... And you write, once again, you write that there was a sense of relief when that verdict came in. Oh, it was a massive relief. When I walked, I walked down the stairs at the Old Bailey, and number one court, and I, I felt this weight lift from me. You know, I'd had such a painful life, but I'd, I'd inflicted so much pain on other people. That was more painful. And when it was over, I was glad. I mean, you know, the officers in Wandsworth were joking. 20 years ago, you'd been on, e- on E-Wing. I found out later that E-Wing was where the gallows was and the, the death cell. And I thought, Christ, I wouldn't have minded that at all. You know, no. they, were, they were making jokes. I would, have been, I, would have been, I would have been there before them, you know. So presumably then at the time you felt that you had nothing to give, really. You had nothing to offer back to society. Do you mean at the beginning, Jonathan? Well, in that period, when you, even when you were found guilty and you felt this relief, though, to, to find your way, as you did, yeah. that, that cannot have been... A clear path open to you initially. Well, all I could see, I'm banging up in a cell for 23 hours a day. I could, I, if I looked forward, all I could see was a, a long black tunnel. You know, I couldn't see, I couldn't imagine. You know, I wasn't thinking rehabilitation, writing, uh, you know, positive experiences in prison. I was just thinking, how the hell does anybody survive this? How, do I, how, how am I going to survive this? You know, I deserved all that was coming to me. You know, my, my table, my chair, my bed, my bucket for my toilet. That was it. But, but I deserved it all, so I, I, I would never, I'm never going to complain about that. Mm. But I never thought... I, I didn't think there was a future, if I'm honest. I really didn't. I mean, how does anybody think there's a future when you're in such a deep, dark hole? And I imagine, I get this from the book as well, that many people who work within their system also don't necessarily see that there is a future, that there is a possibility for rehabilitation of those that go through the system. I mean, you talk earlier on how the council look at you and you think they're looking at you as if you're just another piece of society's you know, waste, basically. Yeah. There are people in the, in the system, you know, that, that, that feel that, but there's an army of good people that work in our prisons that, tr- that and they're there not to give prisoners a good experience for the prisoner's sake or because they're over-compassionate. There's an army of people, teachers, psychologists, prison officers, governors. They're all fantastic people. There are people who work in those prisons that shouldn't really be in charge of human beings, but there's a good amount of good people who want that prison experience to mean something. So... Because they want to, they're doing. They don't join the prison service to just to inflict barbarism on the prisoners. A lot of people join the prison service because they want to, you know, make a difference in people's lives. And it's and, and the purpose. To, what I saw was, they, they do that to try and reduce the number of potential victims of, of people like I was. You know, when we were we released, we release from prison seventy or eighty thousand people a year, and the majority reoffend within a very short time. But Jonathan, I promise you. I'm not a spokesman for prisoners. I'm not an apologist. But the majority of the people I met in prison had the desire not to be, you know, harm causers and criminals. They, they had the desire to change. 
That's an important message to get out there because I think it's very easy for, for people like me, for example. I've been very rarely in touch with people who've, who've worked, done anything outside of the law, but it's very easy to make a judgment which is not informed by any actual first hand information. And, and when you get statistics like the one that you just offered us, that, that can seem like the situation is desperate and that perhaps these things can't change. But clearly, you are an example of, of what can come out of a process when, when someone is steered in the right direction and encouraged and helped in that way. I assume writing the book was somewhat cathartic for you. In some ways it was. In other ways, I thought, it, I hoped it would be, you know. I thought I could lay ghosts to rest and sort of move on. Not that I want to, I will never move on from my crimes, you know. I'll never, my slate will never be clean. But I thought it might, it, it's helped me just to, just to have a look at, you know, how, how I became what I became. Because, look, I could never imagine being a, being a, a, a person that would cause other people pain and grief now. I've got to tell you, I just couldn't imagine being like that. But then I didn't care. I didn't care about other people. because, And you know what? Because I didn't care about myself. Yeah. And the consequences weren't something you were working towards. You didn't want to cause harm, but you didn't care that you, your actions might. Exactly that. Okay. We're going to take a break now. I'll be talking to Erwin some more after this. This is uh, Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong. That, my friends, is class. I'm here with Erwin uh, James. His book, uh, Redeemable, A Memoir of Darkness and Hope, is our fact, not fiction, radio to book club, uh, book of the week here. Um, let me just ask you about what you're doing now, because, as I said, it's a, I think it's a, a, a remarkable piece of work, and I thank you for writing it, and thank I hope you. many people um, pick it up and read it. Uh, but you now you work now somewhat for the prison community, do you not? Oh, gosh, prison community, that's, a, that's an interesting term. But, I mean, well, I'm the editor of Inside Time, the national newspaper for prisoners. I'm really proud to be that. I used to read that when I was in jail. I never imagined I would one day be the editor. I'm still a Guardian columnist, and so I write, and I still use whatever skills and abilities I've developed in prison to, to bring a greater understanding of, of what, what prison can do for us as a society, you know. So that's my present... Role. But it's interesting because you're clearly not an apologist for uh, crime. Not at all. Or, or the criminals themselves per se, but certainly you are someone, I guess, who wants to raise awareness of the reality, the complexity. It is complex. You know, if you've never been in, if you've never been in prison, you've never been involved in crime, it's hard for you to sort of understand what, what that, you know, why should you care about those people? And if you're a victim of crime, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm always apologetic. Sometimes people who've been victims of serious crime don't like someone like me being where I am and I hate that you know I'm, I'm so sorry about that but I had to do the best I could with the time I had left and part of that was using the skills I've got to the best way I can and I'm, 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 I'm going to do that till till my last breath Jonathan you know well I think uh, you know I think most of us would agree that at the heart of being human is is the uh, finding the strength and the courage to allow the act of forgiveness Gosh. From either side, and I guess that's uh, one of the things which you've benefited from, and, and it's a it's a marvelous sort of postscript to the story that that you can function and you can give something back in the way you are, and that other people can accept that from you. I well, guess I'm, I'm grateful I live in a society prepared to give someone like me a second chance. Well, before we say that, let's see what our listener thought of the book, shall we? Because uh, who knows? <laughs> this might run contrary to what I've just said. Uh, this is our list, the review of Redeemable, a memoir of darkness and hope by Owen Jaynes. This is from Andy Devaney and Jess Thomas. The Radio 2 Book Club. Fact, not fiction. 
I'll tell you what I really enjoyed about it was that I could relate to where they were living because I don't live so far from where they live. I know a lot of places like where they went to Ilkley and stuff like that and Shipley. When you got behind his eyes, you sort of felt sorry for him because of what he'd gone through as a child. I read quite a lot quite quickly. I really enjoyed it. And I'm already passing it on to my wife and friends down at Archery Club. Thanks for a good read. I really, really enjoyed this book. Um, at the beginning, I found it quite depressing. It's, it's downward spiral of his life leading to the life sentence. And then the rest of the book, it kind of took a U-turn. It showed a rise to the redemption. I chart his change as a person. And, and I found that really inspiring. And, and as a result, I'll definitely, definitely be looking out for more James' novels. The book's a very, very detailed portrayal of life behind bars, what it's really like, the nitty-gritty day-to-day life of a prison. James doesn't plead for himself or seek pity. Instead, he paints it as a portrait of a harsh environment that's very, very secretive. He's highly self-aware and he's brutally honest and the book's full of compassion and wisdom and it's very intelligent writing. When I first found I was, I was reviewing it, I thought, mm, I'm not sure about this genre, but it's it changed my perceptions and it's really made me have a good longer look at life. So I highly recommend this book. The Radio 2 Book Club. Fact, not fiction. High praise indeed. You must be relieved, Owen. <laughs> well, I am, actually. I didn't know that was coming. So. Yeah, it could have. Well, you didn't know you were going to be sitting here while we uh, played. Oh, it's, no, a, it's a little thing they say for people. It's a little, a little treat they have for everyone Fantastic. who comes in for Fact, Not yeah. Fiction. Uh, what are you doing next? What are you working on as a writer now, apart from your work with The Guardian and, well, and Inside I'm still, Time? I'm right. I've, got, I've got a couple of things bubbling, you know, and um, hopefully... Um, in the year or so, I might have another book. But in the meantime, I'm just, I'm just glad to still be here, be accepted as, you know, a law-abiding member of society. And still, I'm still going to do what I can with, with the life I have left to, to bring some understanding to, to the complexities of how any of us become who we become. That's the big question, I guess. Mm. And that's what we all struggle with. Owen, it's a pleasure meeting you, and I very much enjoyed the book. So thank you for coming in. Pleasure meeting you, Jonathan. Thank you. You've been listening to the Radio 2 Art Show podcast with me, Jonathan Ross.